So welcome to the dedicated practitioners group that we're beginning this evening on the first Tuesday of the month. My intention is to do this um, through the end of the year, which will be five meetings. And um, at that point, we'll sort of reevaluate and see uh, what feels right for going forward. Just seem nice to have a kind of a set trial period. Um, this is not hybrid as we thought. It's all online for now. And I'll let you guys know if that's going to change for those of you who are uh, able to come to Insight Santa Cruz if it were to be there. Um, good, so welcome. So I don't have any grand statement to make at the beginning, except really to welcome you. My thought for this evening was this, this is, you know, more of a, a traditional Dharma group. It's not a class. It's not um, sutta study. It will be a sit um, probably for about 40 minutes or so, maybe 45, we'll see. And uh, I'll lightly guide the beginning, but the sense is that all of you have a practice. And so I will hopefully just be facilitating your entry into that. And um, we'll, we'll get some practice done together. And then I'll give a Dharma talk maybe for half an hour or so. And that will leave an ample period of time for uh, discussion or questions. Cause I think that is very much how um, people start to learn more as they go along. You probably have all the information you need about the Dharma, but we, keep, we have to keep hearing it again and again. And, um, and then we also learn by engaging. So I think for tonight, we'll just um, do it that way. And if, if things like small groups or other things seem natural in the future, we can try that also. But um, Let's see how that works. Are there any questions before we start? That was my only, that was my aim for this evening and we'll just see how it goes. Um, I'm gonna pause the recording during the sit actually. Okay, so <clears throat> I, uh, I wanted to speak this evening about um, several different topics, but organized around the notion of wisdom. And, you know, in popular usage, we think of wisdom maybe as a kind of an accumulation of knowledge and life experience that kind of ripens at some point, usually late in life, we might become a wise old person. And it's, you know, it's true enough that we certainly gain perspective from living a human life, all going through all the pluses and minuses and ups and downs and challenges of a human life, certainly that process provides ample opportunities for having some understanding of how things work. Let's say it that way. Um, but the, the Pali term um, panya is the one that's usually translated as wisdom. There are a number of words, but panya is the most common one. And in Buddhism, um, panya is something that arises in a moment, it arises with an experience, and it provides 
a useful perspective from which to see or act. So it shines a light so that there can be uh, discernment and seeing of some kind. And then sometimes wisdom also allows us to cut through whatever um, attachments or reactivity there is in the moment and not get caught in that or act on that. So wisdom has this kind of uh, multifaceted function of shining a light and sometimes cutting um, through cobwebs <laughs> that are distracting our experience. So it's not unrelated to, I think wisdom is a good translation of Panya, but it, it's not exactly the same idea that we have um, because you know, we can ask, well, how can panya arise? You know, how does something arise in the moment with experience that helps us see, you know, that is some kind of seeing and that even has a function, you know, that can act in the moment so that we do a wise action of some kind. And we can understand from the way I've described it that panya has more to do with the development of the mind than with the aging of the body, let's say. So it's possible for a pretty young person to have discerning wisdom um, in the Buddhist sense. And it's also possible for some, an elderly person to have not gained very much liberating wisdom in their life. Um, so I think there is this, a correlation, you know, a certain amount of the more experience you have, the more chances you've got to build things up, uh, build up an understanding and have some discernment. But it depends a little bit how much you were paying attention during all that experience happening in your life. And, you know, on the flip side there, it is possible even from a young age to have some of this if the mind is well developed. So yeah, just... Uh, so today we'll, we'll explore um, some of these dimensions of, of panya or of wisdom in the Buddhist sense of the word. So a common definition of wisdom that you'll see in the Pali Canon texts, the early texts, is that it has to do with um, being able to see arising and passing. So uh, this quote says, uh, they, meaning the wise, have the wisdom of arising and passing away, which is noble, penetrative, and leads to the complete ending of suffering. So it's pretty um, clear that wisdom is highly valued in the tradition. It's something that um, has a lot of potential, but it's, um, you know, the wisdom of arising and passing away. What's so wise about seeing arising and passing? Why is that singled out as something that's characteristic of Panya? So we might, let's, let's investigate that. You know, how would we understand that more? So one way is we could look at the broader context in the teachings to give a sense of, you know, what is it that we're supposed to notice as arising and passing away? And if you do this, you'll find that there are a huge number of suttas that talk about noticing things that come and go. So I just made a very um, brief list of the things that we're supposed to notice the arising and passing away of. And it includes, it turns out to be nearly everything, actually. It's the, the five aggregates, the six sense bases and their objects, 
And even the five faculties, the spiritual faculties, all of which are good, arise and pass. The seven factors of awakening arise and pass. So like everything that is important in the teachings, we're supposed to also notice that it arises and passes. So there's something apparently very important about seeing uh, inconstancy, which is the word that I want to use mostly this evening for as a translation of anicca, arising and passing away or change, inconstancy, which I think is probably a better translation than impermanence, which we often hear, but I've come to value inconstancy. I'm giving out, giving it a try. Uh, and that's partly because the word um, Nietzsche doesn't exactly mean permanent in the sense of eternal. You know, Anicca is the negation of that. It really means something like constant or continual or in, in the sense of reliable. You know, like the um, least up to now in your life, um, for the most part, oxygen has been pretty constant. You didn't have to think about it. It was there. Now we've probably all had experiences where it didn't, it wasn't there briefly uh, or for some time. But, you know, generally we, the, the oxygen that we have is constant. That would be Nietzsche. Um, so something like that. So, but we're supposed to watch and notice that all these things are not constant, they're anicca. Um, so we have, we start to observe as we see more and more things in, the, in light of this lens of seeing arising and passing, we see the relentlessness of change. You know, there are things that change really rapidly like feeling tone, you know, whether something is pleasant or unpleasant, that can just, that can flip in an instant, right? Um, and it does quite frequently if you try to watch the feeling tone of each moment of experience. On the other hand, there are things that last for a long time, but they too do shift and change. So eventually, of course, we're directed to see a very special kind of uh, object arising and passing, which is uh, dukkha, or you know, this sense of of stress or struggle or difficulty or suffering or unreliability or unsatisfactoriness uh, that is dukkha and that too arises and passes this is what the four noble truths are about first of all they say you have to notice it that's the first one but then you know we notice that it um, arises <laughs> the second noble truth of course we mostly think of it as it's saying the cause of suffering is um, craving or clinging, uh, but actually that the word that goes with it is much closer to in meaning to arising. So with the arising of craving, there is the arising of suffering. That's how they, that's how they appear together. If the mind grabs on or reaches out or pushes away instantly, there's a stress associated with that. That's the second noble truth. And then the third says, but that can end. Notice when dukkha ends. It's not here, 24-7, 365. There are moments where there isn't dukkha. And so we're so the arising and passing of dukkha is the essence of the noble truths. So even in there, we have a nature. So when we really dedicate ourselves to seeing arising and passing, uh, we start to realize, well, it's not that important what is arising and passing? We're supposed to understand arising and passing itself as a process. What does it feel like when something comes into existence? Is it coming into existence or just coming into our awareness? That's an interesting thing to explore. Uh, and what does it feel like when something goes away, when something ends? Do we really watch that 
pass away out of existence, what goes with it, what conditions um, collapse when something is, is leaving, what other conditions go with it. So there's something about the experience of change itself that gradually affects the heart as we watch it more and more often. When we allow ourselves to feel it really deeply, it has a long-term impact uh, over time, it accumulates. So I wanna offer a schema that Shinzen Young offers about um, the sort of different stages that we go through in understanding anicca as we start to observe it. So, you know, what kinds of anicca are there essentially? So the first he calls the trivial, um, which is based on inattention. You know, something is here and then we lose track of it and then later it isn't here. And so we say, oh, that went away, you know, um, like uh, something where we didn't actually see the end of it. Like, I don't know if you saw the end of breakfast this morning, but you know, you can think back and there was breakfast and then there wasn't breakfast anymore. You were on the computer or what, taking a shower or whatever you were doing next. And largely that's due to inattention is that we look back and things have ended or, you know, we, we realize something's going to end in the future. So we need to prep for it and then we're on to the next thing. You know, for the most part, that's what, the way we do it. Um, and then, it, but if we get more determined about it, and this often happens during meditation, if we um, really uh, dedicate ourselves to watching things arise and pass, uh, not mattering too much what they are, we go through an experience that he calls the harsh, Shinten Young calls the harsh uh, sense of, of change. And that is where it feels jagged. Um, we're, we have pretty good continuity of mindfulness, but we feel that um, change happens. Uh, there are strong sensations that come and go, sometimes quickly. And you'll see this in meditators when they, um, um, sometimes you have jerking movements that come and go, or sometimes um, emotions will come very strongly and we don't know where they came from. Um, or we can have experiences in meditation that are unusual, like suddenly our body will feel very big or we'll, we'll see a bright light or something you know, in the mind. And so we have this sense that things change very rapidly or strongly. And some people get a little scared um, when this starts to happen in meditation. Uh, these are some of the stages sometimes of early concentration or people get worried that they're, you know, that they don't know how to handle it or, something. And so then they might get discouraged and sort of go back to something easier. But actually, um, if we stay with it, of course, they're not all unpleasant, by the way, we can get rushes of joy and bliss and faith and, you know, wonderful things. And then we rush to our teacher and say, I had this amazing thing. And it was, you know, which is great. And teachers are very happy to hear that. Um, but if it's change, you know, if you look at change, it's like, oh, these are rapid, big changes. And it feels like a lot is happening, a lot of energy moving. And then if we, but if we stay with that and we really, and we don't get sucked into those exact experiences, like, oh, it's, the, it's about the bliss. How can I get that strong bliss back? If we instead see the change, you know, the more universal characteristic, then we go into the third stage of understanding in Nietzsche which is the blissful and it becomes smooth, um, bubbly, kind of uh, very pleasant, usually um, more like a massage fluid in a way, usually pleasant. 
um, we can have very nice experiences of a nature that way. And, you know, this is where we can start to um, appreciate the, the way that a Nietzsche kind of massages the heart. And so, yeah, it's definitely recommended to stay with this practice of a Nietzsche until we get to some of these um, deeper experiences of it, because then they're, they're operating more directly on the being, let's say it that way. And we might note that the experience of change of a Nietzsche is itself in constant, right? It can be different ways at different times. So I think that's kind of um, onomatopoetic in a certain sense. So the implication of ever-changingness, if I can call it that, is profound. Because just by continually observing this, the mind is learning at a deep level that there is truly nothing to grasp. Especially when we get to the kind of time when, when the experience just feels like it's kind of blah, 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 just going along. We realize, why, why could, I couldn't even grasp this. It's like sand falling through the fingers or water flowing through the fingers. You can't grab a stream. It doesn't make any sense. So we understand that there's nothing to grasp or that grasping will just lead to suffering or frustration. Um, so insight into a Nietzsche, of course, leads to uh, the insight that nothing can provide lasting happiness. Um, this is one aspect of dukkha and that there's nothing especially controllable, which is an aspect of anatta. So Anicca can be the key to you know, unraveling the whole understanding of how things work, which is panya, understanding how things work so that you know, in the moment, the right uh, response can arise. So then the question comes down, well, how do we, comes down to how do we live that? You know, how can we live this understanding of uh, inconstancy that we're practicing during meditation? So I have a quote here from a teacher named George uh, Draffin that I liked a lot. He says, um, usually we are so caught up in trying to make pleasant experiences arise and stay or trying to make unpleasant experiences disappear or we get lost in the details of mental and emotional dramas that we don't notice the basic characteristic all experiences and things share, their impermanence or inconstancy. Let the implications of the fact that everything is changing sink deeply into your bones. Know in mind, heart, and body. Live that knowing in the choices of life day to day. Let it remind you that this fleeting world is precious, that we have some choices within a world of momentum and constraint, and these choices matter. They lead to suffering and regret or to freedom and peace. So I like what he says about the world of momentum and constraint in that um, it feels that way, doesn't it? I mean, we do have a certain momentum to our life. We're not just um, uh, kind of, I mean, we are starting fresh every moment, but we're, we have things that we've set in motion. That's what we've done. That's life. The process of life is something that was set in motion and it's not going to end until, you know, until death, that particular motion. And so we, we, we do have momentum and we feel that in, in cases where we're trying to change our behavior, for example, do you feel the momentum of prior habits? You know, you flow in, you have this great idea that you're going to speak kindly or 
uh, be mindful during a conversation and you know right out the window because of what momentum the momentum of the pattern it takes a while and then also he mentions constraints so there are it's the same thing is that we you know because we've created certain channels in our mind and body of how we already are acting how we you know how we've constructed our being up to now we have a few constraints around what can happen not just anything can uh, come about immediately anything theoretically anything can happen at any time if a huge amount of past karma ripens in a given moment we don't know what that could be but um generally we have some constraints on how we're going forward and so it's not so much that we get to just twiddle a dial you know like we can turn a machine on and off in a certain way it's not mechanical like that it's a dynamic process already in motion and we're making changes on the fly <laughs> that's how we practice and so that's why it takes time over time for us to change things about our ourselves so but he says within that we have some choices we have a rudder in the stream that we're floating down and we can uh, make some choices and they matter. And so that part about leading toward or away from suffering, that is discernment. You know, that's the role that wisdom plays is at this moment, which way do I need to turn the rudder so that the momentum I've got carries me in a pretty good direction. So, <clears throat> I want to bring in now another aspect of wisdom that might at first sound a little divergent, but in the Buddhist teachings, wisdom is linked to faith or confidence, which is sada, that's the Pali word. And these might at first seem very different. You know, wisdom is when you know things and faith is when you don't know something, right? So fundamentally, they seem to come from different directions, but, um, uh, the faith and wisdom are mutually supportive and they reinforce each other and each one allows the other to go deeper, it turns out. You know, the more you know about how things work, the more you're willing to put out and take a risk because you have a sense that it will be okay. You'll have confidence to go forward. And the more confidence you have and a willingness to go forward, the more you're going to be able to learn and gain that wisdom. Right, So they go together. Each one, a strong faith can lead to stronger wisdom. Strong wisdom can lead to stronger faith. So in the end, the deepest wisdom is the same as the deepest faith, it turns out. So I want to relate this then to, uh, you know, all of this is a little abstract sounding perhaps, but let me, um, let me talk about an experience that I uh, had a few years ago. Um, it is said that if you can't meditate, you should travel. And because they're similar in certain ways. So a few years ago, I went to Sri Lanka to practice and I went with um, two other people. One was a Buddhist nun and one was a lay woman supporting her. And we didn't have exact plans, but we did have an overall mission that we were looking for a monastery where the nun could stay for a while and practice and um, uh, do some extended practice. And this is not sort of an obvious thing. You can't just go into any monastery, it turns out, as a bhikkhuni. And, you know, there need to be uh, some acceptance of that and, and so forth. So we had to find a place that was open to that idea for her to be there for a while. However, after five days um, of being together and uh, staying at a retreat center together, 
um, that plan fell apart because they, uh, they, they heard about a new monastery that they hadn't tried out and they arranged to go there, but the monastery only allowed, said that they only had space or would only allow two people to come, the nun and one supporter. So they went and I was left. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, um, something else is gonna happen, have to happen for me on this retreat. So I, um, you know, I, on this trip, so I don't speak the language in Sri Lanka, and I didn't really know that many places. They had been there before, and I hadn't. So I was relying on them to um, sort of introduce me to the Dharma world there. So um, that was a problem. And then I also was hoping to visit an old monk named Venerable Nyanananda, excuse me, <coughs> at the, um, who, who lives in Sri Lanka, who lived in Sri Lanka. He's dead now. But, um, excuse me, they were my ticket to getting there, essentially. So that was also a challenge. So with everything out the window, I realized that I would have to rely on faith. So I got very clear about the fact that I was gonna need help. And I remember actually lying on the bed in the now empty room after my friends had left and just sort of opening my mind and saying, okay, you know, what, what can we do going forward here? And what's gonna work? And so step-by-step, step, and then I let go and just, you know, uh, did what was practical. And step-by-step step resources appeared. I stayed on, I was at a living at a retreat center at the time and they had another retreat starting in a few days. So I convinced them that it would be okay for me to stay in between. They didn't usually do that, but they let me do that. And then I went on, stayed for the next retreat. And the next retreat happened to be a sponsored by a nonprofit um, that was a, a group of Sri Lankan professionals uh, coming on retreat at this center. And so that meant that they all spoke English pretty well. So my roommate was a, a woman who had worked for a while for a Western company as an accountant and her English was good. And we talked about the Dharma, um, the Dharma talks that we were listening to, we talked about them and she realized that the, uh, I spoke, I understood the Dharma pretty well. And, you know, it's like, I wasn't lost uh, with all the Dharma concepts and I uh, had interesting questions and comments. And she said that because of that, um, she wanted to invite me to her house in Colombo uh, to stay because she ran kind of a kind of, kind of a Dharma oriented life. So I didn't stay for very long, but um, I had a place to go then. And she told me about some other practice centers and she eventually um, helped me get to Anuradhapura, which is a city up in the North and to do some um, Buddhist touristing, if you will. And interestingly, another person on the retreat uh, happened to be someone who regularly went to visit Venerable Nanananda. And when I told her that I, I was disappointed that I wasn't going to be able to go because my friends had gone, she said, I'll take you. So I got to see him after all, which was good because he died three months after that meeting. Um, so, you know, things came about and uh, it wasn't the, the retreat that I, the, the trip that I expected it to be exactly, but it was so profound because it seemed like each time I stepped through a door, another door opened. And I didn't know what, what that was going to be, but I had a lot of faith that that would work. And 
it wasn't that I it wasn't that I was being passive. I had to make effort. I had to figure things out, make decisions, um, uh, keep on my toes, if you will. But each time I did that, something else came. So, you know, it um, it was kind of steering. You know, it was this steering down the river, like I was talking about. So this is what is meant by wisdom as a lived experience. And it also links faith and wisdom you know, to taking steps like that. So the path is like this, the stream is like this. Um, and so I hope that you'll um, open to this dimension in your life and consider that you know, things that are appearing, we can use some discernment. Does that seem like it will go toward or away from suffering? Can we step into that? Can we find a way to meet that? And even if it's unpleasant or it feels like it didn't work, oh my gosh, that was a wrong step. Maybe it wasn't, you know, you don't know in the long run. But with this practice, we're asked to continually take these steps and link wisdom and faith and see how wisdom is something that arises in the moment, sheds a light on what we might do and cuts the hesitation or the attachment that might prevent us from taking that step. So these are my thoughts. <clears throat> I can tell I'm not used to giving extended Dharma talks <clears throat> for a while. It's also a little dry <clears throat> here today. So sorry about that. But, um, I'd like to hear from you. Any any questions you have on practice or on wisdom or faith or the sitting? Yeah, I'll just open it up and see see where we're at. Heidi. Well, probably one of the most obvious benefits of really coming to grips with impermanence or change um, is that it always undercuts clinging and aversion because, you know, as soon as you think, oh, I can really grasp onto this, well, it's going to change. Right. So, you know, it's, it's always the, the clinging and the pushing away is always at base futile. So... Yeah, if only we could remember that exactly. more often. <laughs> but thank you, that's very true. The end. Hi, Kim. Um, I appreciate your story that you ended with about um, being able to take it, be in a difficult circumstance and to move forward with faith and making good decisions and um, learning from them and learning, working with other people. It's, it's very appropriate for all of us for, you know, when we have to navigate through life, um, life isn't, is always full of challenges. <laughs> And uh, so it's it's good to remember that um, to be mindful and to uh, and and to be have faith that things will, will work out and, and keep your awareness up and as you go th 
go through the your daily life. So yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, of course, I hardly had to reach back a few years for that example, right, in that everything has changed quite a lot in the regular world in the last year. Um, yeah, but I felt in that particular circumstance, there was a lot of Dharma uh, momentum supporting that. And I don't know that, I think we build that up in our own heart, essentially, and changes of samsara can be met if we've created some of that momentum in our heart. Michaela, you're unmuted. Yeah, I had an experience. I had an experience that I wanted to share. Um, okay. Because it's hard to, to tell it to most people. But um, so I have been in the last years very contented and easily satisfied. Speaking of which, thank you so much for that meta chance. Could I say it every single day? I've got it all memorized and I love it. And, and every time I say it, a little phrase pops out that st stands out for the day or something. Mm -hmm. So contented and easily satisfied is really pretty cool. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm quiet. I don't have responsibilities. I'm all by myself here. Beautiful place. So I went on a trip on an airplane to a wedding of a grandson. And the, the, um, the wedding was kind of irrelevant. It was a party for 30-year-olds, really, you know. But what, but, but what was great was four, I have four grown children. And um, they all have families, and they're all busy, and I don't see them very much. I have, in fact, I hadn't seen four of them together as a group without all their hangers-on for maybe 35 years, you know, before they got married and, and all of that. So it was very special. And they and to watch them interact with each other and share their wisdom and their compassion and their life story, you know, the things that they were, it was just, and I found myself in my hotel room beginning to feel not contented and not satisfied. I wanted more. I wanted to be with them more. Ah. It was very, it was very pronounced. And I caught it. And I said, this is clinging to I, I, me, and mine. This is all, this is what suffering, this is what the Buddha's teaching. Oh my God. My I just, family. I just saw it. I said, you know, I'm totally fine <laughs> without these guys. And, and they're not, I won't be able to see them, you know, for a long time, probably. Anyway, it was great because I just rose out of it and, and enjoyed them in the moment. And I might have spoiled the whole thing if I had not had that ability to, to see what it was that my mind was doing. Beautiful. So it's a pretty great story. That is a great story. When I got it home, is. I felt fine. When I got home, I just felt totally, I love my, where I am and my life and my practice. So thank you. And thanks very much for offering this. This is a really a big treat for, for us to be with you. Thank you. I think you can notice also in your story that there was a conditionality there is that you were fine when you didn't have the stimulation of seeing your family and then you were there seeing them. So that condition um, is what gave rise to the discontent coupled with the clinging, of course. But, you know, when, when the stimulation wasn't there, you weren't having the, that thought. So, yeah, interesting. Um, Jerry, I see your hand there. Um, yeah, I, I I found the quote. I, I, I had it half memorized, and it happens to be 
I think from the same person you went to visit, you were able to visit. Um, concept and reality, that's the same guy. Yeah, Yananana. So, yeah. So on page 26, it says wisdom immediate and intuitive. Very nice. And I love that. So I, I like, and, and um, my minimal understanding of uh, wisdom uh, is not really based on the teachings, although I'd like it to be someday soon. But it, uh, it has to be, for me lately, the relationship lately, the last year or two between ignorance that I learn about wisdom by learning about ignorance. Yeah. And that ignorance is a contraction. So I shut down. And in order to, when I realize I'm shutting down and I realize I don't want to deal with life as it is, that's ignorance. But lately as that contraction lets up a little bit, there's truth, which is wisdom. It's very interesting relationship between the two. And really wisdom shines light in the darkness of, of ignorance. And ignorance is, is, is maybe avoidance and denial, but it isn't ignorant in terms of it's somewhat purposeful. And so my wisdom tells me that I need to not necessarily like my ignorance, which I do, but I need to have compassion for it. Because in my case, the ignorance is fear and not wanting to know. So I don't yeah. know if it fits into what you were teaching, into the quotes, but maybe it does in terms of clinging and, and, and opening. I don't, I don't know exactly. Well, ignorance is behind any kind of dukkha, uh, whether it comes from grasping or from aversion or from delusion. Ignorance is behind all three of those. Um, and I think I'll uh, uh, rely back on something that Gil has talked about, which is that um, we should remember that ignorance is not a, a quality of a person or a sort of an you know, inevitable part of the heart, but ignorance is the very thing that we can change along the path, and everybody can change in that way. So it's not that some, some sort of you know, inherent flaw in how we are, we're, we're stupid or we, we didn't get it or something, but um, it's very important to, to see ignorance as transformable, um, which is always the case in, in this tradition. Yeah. And I want to thank you also for this opportunity this evening. Yeah, Nicholas. And I saw your cat a moment ago. Oh yeah, they're running around crazy. We cleared out a bunch of furniture. They have wide open space right oh, now. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Uh, conditionality has been my door into Anicca, which is maybe not something that I had expected, but there's just been like a really strong, concrete sense of seeing cause and effect in my life. Like you know, seeing my phone goes off and the way that I decide to pick it up and engage with it very clearly sow seeds for how I interact with my phone in the next moment. Or if I'm feeling anxious, you know, do I reach for the phone or do I settle into the moment? Well, oh, it's interesting. That's very conditioned by how I've been interacting with my phone. You know, just a lot of this, like, yeah. very simple. And what's been interesting is that 
you know, so this resolve kind of comes in of, okay, like, let's really be here. Let's, let's have that intention of sowing the seeds that we want to sow whenever possible. And it's interesting that kind of Anicca comes in because it's always changing. Like, it's not at all clear in this moment what the wise choice is or you know, where, what's going on here. Like, it's, it's interesting that I kind of had this concept, you know, from reading, I guess, I feel like the three characteristics get kind of emphasized in a certain way in a lot of texts. So I had this kind of idea coming in, oh, I need to investigate it in this order and do these things. But it's been fun for me to see that Nietzsche has really come alive in my own experience because there's kind of this really like resolve around conditionality and really being present and really kind of showing up for myself moment to moment. Interesting, because yeah, conditionality and uh, Nietzsche are considered very linked. Um, you know, seeing yeah, seeing one, you will see the other. So I think you've demonstrated that nicely. That's great. It's a great resolve to have to orient toward conditionality. Yeah, Fred. Kim. Uh, um, I really appreciated the story of your experience. Um, I felt a lot of ease uh, in hearing that afterwards. Um, so to me that um, it's also about mystery um, and uh, that, you know, I think faith is a quality that things happen the way they happen. Faith is a quality where you trust in what's happening um, as opposed to uh, being freaked out or not knowing. So, I, what, what, you know, in, in the sense that, of course, you were uh, a partner, um, uh, your mind was, uh, I mean, you were a partner in what occurred. So, but you were able to, you know, to let go and be a partner with faith. I kind of, I, I, you know, I don't really know exactly what I'm saying, but basically a part of you was willing to let go knowing you, you had to move into a space of not knowing because you didn't know. But I mean, you had to be okay with that not knowing. It's kind of. And in that not uh, holding on in the way we normally are with not knowing, um, whether things came along because of that or not, um, it certainly was easier for you to navigate that experience by, by letting go, you know, and being open, as you, as you said. So to me, there's a, I mean, and what you said was concrete, in other words. So your faith uh, in things working out, you know, lent itself to things working out. Um, but still, there's a mystery. I'm just, uh, I think what I'm trying to say is a mystery to all of um, You know, that's beyond words, that uh, that's fascinating. And 
I think that's why I felt ease because I've had experiences like that as well. We probably all have. I think they happen all the time, but we're just not hip to it. <laughs> you know, things things just happen. You know, things happen and they work themselves out. You know, and it's best when we don't get in the way. So yours was a bigger example of that. Of that. And I will say one other thing, and that is in reference to Michaela's uh, That was an interesting, I, that was just interesting uh, story, Michaela. Um, and I don't know, I'm just gonna say it for me that I, somehow for me, there would be an in-between place in that. Um, in other words, uh, the, there would be sadness as well for me if I had seen my son and uh, I might be able to let go of that, uh, you know, the circumstance, but at the same time, maybe I would either hold on to the sadness or, or that sadness is righteous um, in just the way that life is. You know, the fact that uh, these are the four kids that you had, you know, and you had this life with them and now you don't. And yes, on the one hand, that's... Uh, to hold on to what you can't expect uh, or can't have makes no sense. On the other hand, there is, uh, when you told that to me, there was there is a grief and a sadness in that. So I just want to speak to that as well. Thanks. Well, I appreciate that you've pointed toward the, um, you know, the, dimension of this topic with both wisdom and faith that are outside of the kind of analytical or cognitive aspect of the mind, you know, which we do need to use, but uh, we can be reminded through these qualities that, um, that there's other things operating. And it's not that they're, you know, totally outside of the realm of anything that we could know or work with, but we need to have some faith maybe that the heart and mind can expand into that territory. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's not easy. Evie, I saw your hand. Well, so first of all, your story, Kim, and also Michaela, your story really like moved me to literally to tears. Um, so thank you. And also like sort of going off of what uh, Fred just said and also sort of in response to Michaela's story, I feel like I, the, like in the meditation just now, this is sort of, it feels like a balancing thing, like rather than something that like, oh, I'm trying to grasp at and then let go and sort of realize everything is okay. I just had, I mean, this has happened to me before and I don't know why this happened today. It was before you gave your talk, <laughs> but like, numerous moments where, you know, there's something, you know, some grief or some sadness or some fear or something that's a little bit difficult coming at me or arising. And, you know, my initial impulse is like, uh, like, no. And then just had such a strong sense that like, no, 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 turn toward that. And then I turned toward it. And then it's like, just this little thing. And it just sort of floated by. So it's like, um, I don't know. It feels like a balanced thing to, it feels like the, the, um, you know, instead of 
letting go of something that I was clinging to, it was like I was um, turning towards something that then when I looked at it, wasn't that big. And so it didn't sort of stick to me or it didn't, you know, it didn't cause me trouble. Yeah, I don't know. Or something I had such, I don't think I'm articulating this very well, but Michaela, it, it just felt so much like the, the flip side of the same, a very similar kind of thing. So delightful. Wonderful. Oh, Lorette, and this will be the last one. Yeah, I just wanted to say, Michaela, you're my new hero. <laughs> I just feel like that, my adult children and clinging to that, it's my strongest cling. It's very hard for me. And I, you're giving me hope that I will get there. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. It's, it's ongoing, you know, it's not over. <laughs> well, still, that was darn impressive. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, and it's good when we have moments like that where somehow all the conditions were there for wisdom to arise, to acknowledge those and share them like Michaela did, because that will make it more likely that that can happen again in the future. No guarantees, but, you know, by recognizing our moments of wisdom and our moments of faith, we strengthen those. So um, yeah, so that's another reason that it's useful to have this time together to share and reflect um, on these profound topics. Good, well, it's been lovely to be with everyone. Thank you for coming and we'll be here again on, I think it's September 7th, is that right? The first, the first um, Tuesday in September. So I will look forward to seeing you again at this same link and um, be well in the meantime. Thank you. Bye-bye. You can unmute and say goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. It's nice to see everybody. And really, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.